The downtown east side of Vancouver is third world. We live in a open prison yard. Why should my kids have to live in that risk and that danger? Other citizens have rights as well. You have a right not to inhale secondhand crystal meth smoke. It's really a case of the inmates running the asylum. What is happening to Canada? That is the question being asked in the new documentary, is Canada is dying? And uh, I think it depends on how you see this, or if you want to see it. Certainly the opiate crisis is not new. It was ignored by all levels of government for years. And then, of course, when they decided to do something, the only answer became safe supply. And look, this, this should have been maybe a temporary fix, but somehow it's become permanent. And you can see the results of this all over the country. And yes, Vancouver gets all the attention. Toronto's certainly getting a lot of attention. But this is spreading to small communities from coast to coast, and to question if it's working, uh, well, you'll get the, uh, you know, the minister in charge of it will, will snap. Uh, that has not been allowed, but finally the conversation is being had, because uh, I think we do need answers. What's the long-term game of this? Are we just going to continue down this path? Is safe supply actually safe? Let's ask the man who put this together. His name's Aaron Gunn. The documentary is Canada is Dying. He joins us now. Good to have you, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Really a uh, pleasure to be here. Yeah, I mean, sadly, we share something in common. I think you're in Vancouver still, but um, we're in big cities that are uh, the, the headlines kind of dominate what we're seeing all over. I think Vancouver is much worse, but certainly Toronto. And as you've traveled across this country, you realized quickly this is not just a Vancouver problem. But what, what was it that sparked? And I will point out to our listeners because I've seen this. It's a very uh, recent, very updated. It's not like you made it a couple of years ago. This pretty much uh, like it's very, very present day. But what made you feel like this was the conversation needed? Well, uh, I think we'd have to take one step back. I made a prequel to this called Vancouver yeah. is Dying, uh, which mm -hmm. blew up online. Um, and I made that because I've been living in BC, coastal BC, my entire life. Um, I've watched the past 20 years of the same policies and everyone just saying we need more of this so-called harm reduction. And yet actually living in these communities, you could see firsthand that the situation was getting worse and worse. And if if this was success, I'm not sure what, what failure would look like. But after we produced Vancouver's Dying and it had, um, uh, what was the, it was the largest video I had done at that time, uh, people mm -hmm. reached out from across the country and said, this isn't just happening in Vancouver. You need to come to my community. You need to come to Victoria. You need to come to Lethbridge. You need to come to London or Toronto or Ottawa and see what's happening here. It's, it's uh, the exact same thing. Maybe not on the same scale as Vancouver, but um, mm -hmm. as I always uh, point out, if you copy and paste the same policies or similar policies, you can expect pretty similar results. And what has the reaction uh, been to it? I mean, obviously, I know people will say, wow, that, that's eye opening. But what, what has the um, response been given up until now, uh, up until recently when, you know, Adam Zivo of the National Post put a, a very comprehensive kind of um, investigative piece together and then your piece is out. What's the reaction been to conversations that have not been allowed to been had? Well, I think for the majority of people, um, I think there's a lot of buzz around it. We've got, I mean, 98% uh, positive feedback rating on the YouTube video. Uh, that being said, there's a small minority of people who are benefiting a lot from the current system. They're financially invested in the current system and they have been uh, very antagonized by the documentary, I, I would say, to put it mildly. And, th and they are not happy that we're having the conversation. The way that you phrased it, 
um, earlier is exactly right. There's there's been this this kind of faux consensus that 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 wasn't real, but would appear to be re- real uh, up until quite recently because we weren't having these conversations. Uh, you know, we've been handing out this so-called safe supply in in London, Ontario, for example, for for almost ten years, and uh, it's like you almost weren't allowed to talk about it or you weren't allowed to push back on it. And um, finally, I think that's happening. Finally, we're having these these serious debates, which I think in a democracy are important to have. And that's what my you know main goal of the documentary is to actually to say, let's have these conversations. I don't think these policies are working um, and at the very least spark a debate. Yeah, I mean, look, it's supposed to be about compassion, um, uh, but you only need to look and watch the images. I don't I don't see what the compassion is to see people literally. Um, they look dying on the streets, the degradation to what they go through to see their lives just out in the open as they're just living for that next hit. That's what their life literally becomes is looking for that next hit. And I don't see the compassion here. I'm trying to figure out what is so compassionate about this. But you kind of I think it's interesting because you take us how this got a hold with the Oxycontin and then to where we are now with fentanyl. Can you take me through this bit as to how it started and how it's and where it's evolved to? Yeah, and that was the biggest kind of light bulb moment when I was making this documentary is, is and this just happened through through interviews and, and piecing the story together. Everyone kind of acknowledges what the opioid crisis is and, and how it started, which was that a company called uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals in the United States um, distributed en masse uh, a drug called Oxycontin. And they advertised it as being uh, reasonably safe and not very addictive and um, kind of distributed en masse. And uh, millions, tens of millions of people mm-hmm. got, became addicted to this drug. Uh, hundreds of thousands, over 100,000 people died, more than uh, died in the f- uh, First and Second World War combined uh, for Canada. And um, it, it started this giant addiction crisis and the government tried to cut it off. And then a lot of those people who were addicted to Oxycontin moved on to fentanyl and other opioid drugs and, and spawned kind of this giant homelessness addiction crisis that we see on our city streets today. Now, it's weird to me because this has been acknowledged across the political spectrum that this was a disaster, that Purdue Pharmaceuticals um, should be punished. For example, in British Columbia, the NDP government uh, is suing Purdue Pharmaceuticals in the U.S. They have sued uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals for billions of dollars, um, and we wanted to take those drugs off the street. Now, the weird thing is, is now in the past couple of years, we've accelerated a program called Safe Supply, uh, which is basically the government uh, distributing en masse uh, an opioid called hydromorphone. Well, hydromorphone is very similar to Oxycontin, except it's two to three times stronger. So we're now distributing en masse and, and we're calling it Safe Supply. So basically, we sued Purdue Pharmaceuticals for distributing en masse a highly addictive, powerful and dangerous opioid called Oxycontin and advertising that it was safe. And then we as a government are turning around and distributing en masse an addictive, powerful, incredibly dangerous opioid that's two to three times more powerful than Oxycontin and marketing it as safe supply. So we're really doing the exact same thing that caused the Mm -hmm. opioid crisis in the first place. Um, except this time, I think we're going to create a second wave that's going to be even 
much larger and much more devastating. And just one more anecdote I got I got to share. We interviewed an addictions counselor um, at a, an addictions clinic in British Columbia. And they said, um, basically two years ago, before the Safe Supply Program really ramped up, um, about 90% of the people that walked into their clinic with severe addiction issues were addicted to fentanyl. Uh, that would, And the other 10% mix of painkillers uh, like Oxycontin, uh, benzos, other things. Um, in the last six months, 50% of the new uh, clients, patients that they have who walk into the clinic are addicted to hydromorphone, the drug that the government is distributing. So, I mean, the, the federal government has become the number one drug dealer in the country at this point. Yeah. And, and keep in mind, uh, Vancouver has decriminalized uh, heroin, meth, cocaine, fentanyl in what they tell us is evidence uh, based, um, you know, drug policy. And frankly, you just need to go look at the headlines in Vancouver. It is not working in Toronto's Toronto Health. Uh, does want to go down this road. So uh, I think we should think real careful about this. Aaron, I just want to talk to you about a few of the things that um, went into making this. How challenging was it for you to get um, addiction doctors or psychiatric doctors to go on record to talk about it? Because I know that there is a real fear, a backlash from a lot of them. I mean, Andrew Zivo talked about it in his investigative piece where they just don't want to talk because they don't want to be attacked by, by the industry of the safe supply. And so what was your experience like? Yeah, we ran into similar issues. Uh, there's a, a addictions counselor and a pharmacist that are interviewed that are that are um, have their identities kind of um, not shown, their faces not shown on the camera. So that's one way we got around it. Um, mm -hmm. But in in general, people are people are worried about losing their jobs. People are worried about kind of um, you know saying something that doesn't fit with the the current orthodoxy of the safe supply movement, which is being pushed. Uh, and the important thing for people to understand is this is being pushed by Health Canada, by the Trudeau government's Health Canada, and they're the ones that are handing out the money and funding all of these programs. So even if the programs, for example, are happening here in Ontario, like in London, uh, mm -hmm. they're being funded and pushed by the federal government. So there's a lot of money at, at, at play uh, here. Yeah, no question about it. And I'd be curious what the response has been like since you you aired this. And I think you point out something very important, that there are pharmacies that actually play a role because they can make a lot of money. There's areas that you can exploit in this. Yeah, they make a huge amount of money. I mean, the pharmacy is just, people understand how the safe supply program works, is the government supplies these uh, addictive, powerful opioids on a daily dispense. So every day the person goes up and picks up their pill bottle. Uh, a lot of times they don't actually use those pills. They they divert them or sell them black, back into the black market, which is a huge issue. But um, every time those pills are dispensed, the pharmacy gets a dispensing fee, and that's how they make their money. So when you get these safe supply programs to start, you know, having thousands and thousands of people in them, uh, that's a lot of money for the individual uh, pharmacies. Yeah, it's quite something. I want to talk about... Um you know, what should be a conversation and how do we get out of this? What's the answer to it? I, I safe supply cannot be a permanent fixture unless we want Portland, Oregon, Seattle, San Francisco. If that's what we want our uh, cities to look like, that's where we're headed. Um, and so I want to talk about the Alberta project, which um, gets talked about a lot, but then cast off as eh, it doesn't, it, yeah, it doesn't really work. It was started by a guy named Marshall Smith, who, yes, he's very successful in politics now, playing a chief of staff to Alberta's new premier. But I think it's interesting because his story comes from his time on the streets, addicted to drugs for years. And uh, so I think he, he obviously brings experience 
experience for this program through what he did and experienced? Yeah, he's an incredible individual. I've gotten to know him quite yeah. well through the, the last two episodes. I mean, lived on the downtown east side for, for four or five years, um, went through, got treatment, got into recovery, and completely rebuilt his life to the to the point um, that you just made. He's now chief of staff to Alberta's new premier, and he's really been spearheading this recovery-oriented system of care in Alberta for the past uh, three or four years, and they're building 10 new treatment facilities. And, um, you know, the idea is the idea is to make it easier to get into treatment than it is to get high, than it is to get your next fixed. And right now, uh, it's the exact opposite of that in, in most of Canada, especially places like BC, where the drugs are just everywhere and yeah. um, wait lists for treatment are can be months long. Not to mention incredibly expensive. And I think it's interesting because the way they're set up, it's almost like um it's like a community within a community, and it's like it has all the support. So you would go in, you get your treatment, and then you have someone with you. You can stay there for up to a year, and you're all in it together, but you have those supports, whether it's getting off the drugs, whether it's rebuilding your life, whether it's building structure. But th there's such a support system around it, and it completely makes sense because, to your point, Toronto doesn't have any supports either. So you might be able to get someone in to get sober, but then they fall again when they get out because that support system's not there. And so I'd love to see a program like this start. You know, it is getting into the political um, uh, sphere now. Um, you got Pierre Polyevra taking a lot of heat, um, saying that he would go the route of Alberta. But I think, you know, unless we get serious at the border and stop these drugs from flowing in and shutting down the labs, like we, we don't even try to get ahead of this. And so I think it's going to take a real serious political effort and it's got to take serious commitment uh, to get this right. Yeah, it is. And, you know, you made a point earlier about, you know, what is compassionate? And I think if you drive down or walk down, uh, if you're feeling brave, the, so the streets of some of the, the downtowns of our major cities, and you look at what's happening and what the addictions crisis, the havoc that is wreaking, I don't think our current approach is being compassionate. I don't think handing out free drugs is compassionate. You, you see these facilities in Alberta, and it's about getting people better. It's about getting people clean and providing mm -hmm. those supports so they can turn their life around. And, and the thing that I always point out, the double standard, the hypocrisy Alex, is any of these politicians that are pushing the safe supply yeah. program, like Justin Trudeau, if it was their kids, do you think the solution that they would accept for them would be, oh, here's some more drugs? No, they would get into they would get into the best treatment and recovery in the world, sure. right? Um, well, not to mention you know, if these it, safe safe supplies were in their community and they had to watch, you know, because the other criminal elements, because these people are exploited by criminals, and then the the crime and all the rest, they would never let that. And I've invited Carolyn Parrish or Carolyn, sorry, Bennett, who is my uh, MP. You know, come on down. Let's go take a field trip if you think it's so fantastic. Like, show me the evidence of this working because I, I, I'm not seeing it. Maybe it's just me. Um, and the other thing I think is important to point out was what Marshall Smith said, which was, it's the isolation. You know, the isolation of addiction. It's just the way of life um, that you are. You're alone. And so I'm like, what's so compassionate about keeping people in complete isolation to fight for their next hit? I mean, every day is a new fight. And they're, you know, it's all day, all night. All they're doing is looking for a hit. And if they don't get that hit, things can either go to crime or death. I mean, there's just so many things that can go wrong day to day, hour to hour for an addict. No, exactly. And just it's you know it's it's an extension of you know how you would treat your 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 own children or people you know in your family that are a problem. You wouldn't mm -hmm. continue to feed mm -hmm. an addiction. And what what we're doing right now, especially in BC, uh, you know, where we're just kind of buying up these hotels and warehousing addicts in them and throwing in a bag of drugs, 
Um, that's not going to help them. That's not going to turn their life around. And I spoke to so many um, addicts in recovery who, you know, were living on the streets maybe six, seven or, or 10 years ago who said that if these programs existed when they were on the streets, they'd either A, mm -hmm. still be on the streets addicted to drugs or B, they'd be dead. So yeah. um, we're not helping anybody. We're fooling ourselves. And like I said, I mean, the, the from my perspective in BC, I mean, we've been running this ex experiment for 20 years. Like, I, I don't know what, like how much more evidence you need that what we're doing isn't working. The situation keeps getting worse. This is not yeah. happening. I was like, if, you know, I was just in Europe. Like, this is not happening anywhere near to what's happening in, in, in North America. We need to find a different approach. I think Alberta's leading leading the way in that regard. Yeah. And for those who say, well, Portugal's done it. Yeah, Portugal doesn't have safe supply. It's treatment, 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 aggressive treatment, aggressive treatment. Um, Aaron, what's next for you? Uh, where does this story, I don't think it's going to be fixed overnight. This is not an easy thing to fix, but wh where does this then go now? Well, the first, the, the overarching goal of the documentary was to help spark a conversation. I think that's happening. I mean, it helps that, that, yeah. uh, obviously Danielle was reelected. It helps that, that Pierre is now taking it up. It helps that you have journalists like Adam Zebo writing about it in the National mm -hmm. Post. Well, one year ago, I don't think anybody was talking no. about this at all. And now it is a major political issue. So, um, to that extent, I think, uh, there's, there's, you know, the, the, the mission is the first, first stage of it has been accomplished and that we're actually talking about it. But there's so much more to this story that, that the curtain needs to be pulled back. I mean, I just got an email now There's in, in BC. You know, there's somebody that's trying to raise like a, a $100 million to do a, you know, a, a for-profit safe supply company. There, there's oh. some really nefarious. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's some really nefarious actors, I think, here. That now that the money's involved and people see how much money can be made off of it. So... Maybe yeah. exposing that next uh, will be the next project. Oh, yeah, no question about it. Well, look, it's a terrific piece. Um, I know that there are those who will paint it as extremist and irresponsible. I think it's absolutely uh, worth the watch, and certainly we need to have these conversations. And, uh, and I appreciate your time. I know that you've been working hard on this. So thanks, Aaron. We'll talk again. Thank you for having me. Much appreciated. Absolutely. That is Aaron Gunn. The uh, documentary Canada is Dying. Go YouTube. Watch it. It's free. Um, make of it what you will. But I find it um, heartbreaking, angering. I don't find any of it compassionate. And I do think it's time for a realistic conversation to uh, getting people better. No, I don't think it's easy, but I do think the conversation has to be had. So again, Canada is dying. Aaron Gunn is the filmmaker and we'll have him back. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.